Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined, as always, by Lucas Bitzel virtually. Lucas, I don't know about you, but of all the episodes that we have done so far, this is probably the one I am most looking forward to. I know I've said that about a couple of our past episodes, but honestly, as far as pure joy and enjoyment, this is an episode that I've really been looking forward to, especially after doing the research on this particular World Series. Yeah, let's just say, going into this one, that this episode is the spiritual ancestor to a number of the more modern World Series that we will be talking about in about a year's time. So, if you remember our last episode, it ended with the New York Giants sweeping Cleveland. And I didn't mention this at the end of our last episode, but... After sweeping Cleveland, they landed at LaGuardia Airport a few hours later, greeted by cheering fans. It was Willie Mays' only World Series championship. Now, that celebration is going to be very tame compared to, to what's going to happen at the end of this episode, and we are gladly going to explain that as we get towards the end here. Obviously, if you look at the title of the episode, you probably know what's going to happen. If you're a baseball historian, you know what's going to happen. But we have here in this matchup a team that we have seen a ton of, and we just had a break from them in this New York Yankee absolute juggernaut over the last 30 years against a team that if YouTube existed in the 1950s, one of my favorite YouTubers, Urinating Tree, would have done a legacy of failure video on them, and that is the Brooklyn Dodgers. Let's talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers of 1955, their most balanced team in years. Roy Campanella was hampered during the 1954 season from a hand injury. He rebounded this time to hitch 318, 32 home runs en route to his third MVP award. Duke Snyder hits 42 home runs, a 309 average, and leads the National League with 136 RBIs and 126 runs scored. Don Newcomb also had a bad season in 1954, but he bounced back to a 20-5 record. Then Clem Labine was reliable out of the pen, 13 wins and 11 saves. Walter Alston, in his second season as Dodgers manager, managed his team to a very hot start. They won their first 10 games, 20 of their first 22. By the 4th of July, they were up by 12 and a half games. The Dodgers win the pennant by 13 and a half games over the Braves. You got some real warriors in the Dodgers, some real hot players at that. They are talented and they are 98 and 55. This is an absolutely phenomenal group and one of the names that wasn't mentioned in here and he will not appear during this series, but the Dodgers are going to have a very bright future in the rotation and that is thanks in large part to a 19-year-old rookie by the name of Sandy Koufax. That's right, but Koufax will not exceed his rookie limits until the 1956 season, so... As far as the 55 season is concerned, he's just a blip on the radar. Moving on to the American League champions, guess who's back? The New York Yankees. Yogi Berra wins his third MVP, the sixth pennant for the Yankees in seven years. And you get some good seasons from Bob Turley and Don Larson. Mickey Mantle leads the AL with 37 home runs. They beat the defending American League champions out of Cleveland with a 96-58 and 58 record over three games. So you have the Yankees and the Dodgers matching up once again, and this is the sixth time that these teams have matched up against each other in the World Series. The Yankees have won each of the first five series, 
And interestingly of note, this is the 15th series, a record for Yankees coaches Bill Dickey and Frank Cressetti, both of whom we have mentioned before as players in previous episodes. So the Yankees have their fingerprints all over this baseball atmosphere. And, you know, when you have Whitey Ford going 18 and 7, and you also have Turley going 17 and 13, Tommy Byrne going 16 and 5. You have to respect this team even more than you already did. And they definitely deserve respect, but they're also kind of feared too. Their pedigree speaks for itself. They are a rough 1954 away from potentially having won six World Series in a row. As it is, they had won the prior five, not counting the Giants' victory last year. And given their history against the Dodgers, even though Brooklyn has come close a number of times, the Yankees still have to be feeling pretty confident going into this one. Also of notes, this is the sixth series for Pee Wee Reese and the ninth series for Phil Rizzuto. So the shortstops for the respective teams are getting a lot of playing time in the postseason. Although, interestingly enough, this was not the most played season for Phil Rizzuto. He was 37 years old at this point, only played in 81 games. Most of the games at shortstop were filled in by a 27-year-old by the name of Billy Hunter, but he only had a 567 OPS, and he really will not factor into this series. We'll hear plenty about Rizzuto, though, so that just shows you that you, know, you need experience when it comes to the biggest games of the season. Yeah, absolutely. And given Rizzuto's numbers over the course of the last several years, it makes sense that you have him here for these games. So let's get into these games. Naturally, we start at Yankee Stadium. By the way, this is yet another series in which there will be no days off. But given that all these games are in New York City, there really doesn't need to be any days off. 63,869 are in attendance for Game 1. Carl Ferrillo opens the scoring with a homer to right field, so that puts the Dodgers on the board. You have Jackie Robinson tripling to left center, then scoring when Don Zimmer, newcomer to the World Series, singles with the infield playing in. But then Elson Howard homers to left in his first series at bat. Some more power is coming here. Duke Snyder leads off the third with a home run to the third deck in right field. Then Joe Collins leads off the fourth with a home run into the lower right field seat. And then Collins hits another home run. This one for two runs over the scoreboard in right center for the fifth home run of the game. Then you have Billy Martin tripping over Junior Gilliam's head in left field. And Don Newcomb's game comes to an end right there. He is relieved by a man who will come in for mop duty for the starters very regularly in this series. You'll want to get familiar with the name Don Besant, who is a 24-year-old. He went 8-1 during the season, over 24 games, had 2.70 earned run average. So definitely a reliable pen arm. In fact, maybe the most reliable bullpen arm on the 1955 Dodgers staff. Billy Martin is actually caught stealing home to end the sixth inning, so the sense doesn't really have to do much there. Then we get an iconic play for Jackie Robinson, and when people think of Jackie Robinson, this is the play that probably comes to mind the most, at least it's the most played. So Robinson reaches when Gil McDougald boots a grounder at third base, and eventually makes his way to third, and here is... Maybe the most iconic play of the series, or at least the most remembered. Whitey Ford says of Robinson, I knew he was going to steal home. I almost dared him to by taking a long wind up as he danced off the bag. 
Sure enough, he took off for the plate, and I threw the ball to Yogi and got it there in plenty of time. The pitch was low, right where I wanted it, and Yogi just caught and put his mitts down on the ground in front of the plate, and Robinson slid right into the tag. Robinson was out. There was no question about it. However, Robinson was called safe, even though Barra argued the call furiously in length. And you can definitely see it on the World Series film. Barra just loses his temper right here. You don't really think of Yogi Barra as being a temperamental guy, especially since you and I knew him in his later years before he passed on Lucas. But, you know, this is a play that definitely is representative of the chaos that Robinson caused during his career both on and off the field. The film itself is inconclusive. There's a more obscure film clip, though, that shows a reverse angle that shows him clearly safe because while Bear's glove hovered over the left side of home plate or the first base side, his foot touched the right side of the plate and it was not touched by Bear at all. I'm talking about Robinson's foot right here. So the Yankees win this game by a score of 6-5, to five, but you have to think that what happened with Robinson stealing home might have gave the Yankees a little cause for concern as to uh, how this series might go. I mean, yes, you have the Dodgers number, but when Robinson has a controversial play like that and you're a little upset about it, you might be thinking about some possibilities of things going wrong here. Maybe a little bit, especially given that while Whitey Ford got the win in this game, he only goes eight of the nine innings, allows five runs, three of them earned on nine hits with four walks, two strikeouts, gave up a couple of home runs. So not a particularly impressive performance for one Whitey Ford. Bob Grimm comes in, allows just one hit, but strikes out two Dodgers to record the save and give the Yankees the game one victory. Bill Summers is the home plate umpire at the center of this controversy. I'm a little surprised that Yogi Berra didn't murder him right there in the field, the way he is arguing on that call. I don't know if you've seen this particular play, Lucas, but again, I just can't believe that Berra would have such a temper at a very crucial moment. I know it's only game one, but it just goes to show you how competitive a lot of these Yankees especially were, especially with them winning all these World Series at this time. Well, and this has become, even though it's been one-sided, this is probably one of the premier rivalries in baseball because these teams are playing for the biggest stakes pretty much every October. This is the sixth time, like we mentioned, that these two teams have met in the Fall Classic. Game two, not really a whole lot to talk about. You have Tommy Burns starting for the Yankees. He becomes the first left-hander to pitch a complete game victory against the Dodgers all season. He beats them by a score of 4-2. to two. Starting for the Dodgers in this game is Billy Lowe's, and Besant relieves him with two outs in the fourth, so Lowe's does not have the best game. But even though the Dodgers are down 2 nothing in the series, Jackie Robinson gives them a pep talk saying that they weren't done yet. So the Yankees still are feeling good being up two to nothing, but the Dodgers know that this year is different. They're not just going to lay down for this team. I mean, yeah, they've lost the first two games to the Bronx, but now they're going home, a place that they know they're going to have the backing of the most rabid fan base in all of baseball. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot in the last several episodes. There are some what-ifs as I go back to the fourth inning. Duke Snyder opened the scoring with a RBI single after Pee Wee Reese doubled to lead off the inning. Now, Snyder was thrown out at second trying to stretch that into a double. 
Roy Campanella followed with a walk and then flyouts for Ferrillo and Hodges. So there's a little bit of a what if where either Snyder had been able to get in or if he holds that to a single and you have first and second nobody out with Ferrillo and Hodges up, do they maybe score? The other thing, though, is you go to the bottom of the fourth, Go McDougal leads off with a single for the Yankees. Irv Norin then bounces into a 3-6 double play. Not something you see that often, but then the Yankees able to put together a two-out rally. A Barra single, Collins walk, Elston Howard ties the game with an RBI single, then Billy Martin follows that up with a single of his own to give the Yankees a 2-1 lead. Billy Lowe's hits Eddie Robinson with the next pitch. That loads the bases. Tommy Byrne, a two-run single, is what ultimately chases Lowe's from the game and makes it a 4-1 score. The Dodgers do get one back in the top of the fifth, but that is it for offense in this game as the Yankees win 4-2. No home runs this game. I guess they used up all their power in game one, or they at least needed a breather. We go to game three, as we mentioned, in Brooklyn. A game that will be started by Johnny Padres on his 23rd birthday. The attendees for this game include Ford Frick and AL President Will Harridge. And Campanella gives Padres some support as he hits a two-run homer for his first hit of the series. But Mickey Mantle leads off the second inning with a 390-foot home run into the center field stands. And then Phil Rizzuto has a single. And then we have a play involving someone who's going to be important later on, Sandy Amaros an outfielder for the Dodgers. Amaros throws home to try and nail Moose Scourin, but Scourin knocks the ball from Campanella's hands to tie the game. You have Padres with a bunt single to load the bases, and then Bob Turley, who is starting for the Yankees, he kind of falls apart a little bit. With one out in the second inning, he walks in the go-ahead run. Coming in for him is Tom Morgan, And Morgan really doesn't do a whole lot either. He immediately walks home another run. Then you have a double by Robinson. He moves to third on a Howard throw from left. That is pretty much the story of the Dodgers in game three. Padres gives up seven hits and he is able to give the Dodgers an eight to three win. They are on the board in the series and You have a nice quote from Dodgers Vice President Fresco Thompson saying of Padres, it was a masterpiece. I told the kid afterwards that he'd be around for a long time and never would do a more competent job. But he would definitely be proven wrong in a future game in this series. But nice job by Johnny Padres to get his team on the board along with some timely offense, albeit some of it helped by some Yankee pitching wildness. Yeah, the Yankees is a team issuing seven free passes in this game. Padres, for his part, allows three runs, two of them earned, scattering seven hits over the nine innings. He walked two, struck out six. That's a pretty good first impression from one Johnny Padres. We move ahead to game four. The Yankees have a 2-1 to one series lead. 36,242 in attendance. Among the attendees are Braves President Lou Perini, Red Sox GM Joe Cronin, and Tigers President Spike Briggs. McDougal, the second batter of the game, has a 375-foot homer to the lower left field stands. But the Dodgers get to work on offense as well. Game doubles on a hit and run in which Amaro scores from first base. You have Besant relieving Carl Erskine, who allows a single and a walk to begin the third inning. 
You have Collins stealing third and then scoring on a Billy Martin single. But Campanella homers into left to lead off the fourth inning for his second home run in as many games. Then Gil Hodges hits a two-run homer to right center on outside pitch. Gilliam walks and steals second to lead off the fifth inning. Then Don Larson is relayed by Johnny Cux. And he was actually coming into the game after Larson fell behind 2-0 on Pee Wee Reese. And Reese got an infield single after Cux failed to cover first in time on a grounder to Collins. And then you have Duke Snyder hitting a three-run homer to the right field screen. That was his seventh home run of his series career. And then Snyder does some work with his glove. He makes a one-handed catch on a sinking liner from Scourin in the eighth inning. Labine ends up the winner for this game after allowing three hits in the final four and a third innings. Campanella and Hodges have three hits apiece. The Dodgers tie the series with an 8-5 win over the Yankees. Man, we're getting this power surge yet again and some timely pitching by some, I would say, some unlikely sources for the Dodgers. I think that's fair to say. I mean, Johnny Padres at this point coming into the series was kind of an unknown relatively, but a nice job by the Dodgers not panicking going down 3-1 to one after the top of the fourth. You mentioned the uh, home runs by Campanella and Hodges in the bottom half of the frame that gave them the lead for good. Getting a couple more. The Duke Snyder shot in the uh, fifth that broke it open. Yankees threatened a little bit, but not close enough as we're tied two games apiece. We go to Game 5, 36,796 attendance, including NL President Warren Giles, Giants owner Horace Stoneham, and new manager Bill Rigney. So nice to see the third New York team getting some representation in the stands anyway. Gil Hodges singles past McDougal into left and then scores on Amros' two-run homer over the right field screen. And then you have Duke Snyder homering over the right field fence to lead off the third. You have Boos and robbing Roy Campanella of a diving catch in left center. So a little bit of defense for the Yankees there. Then they get some offense on a bare single off the scoreboard to lead off the fourth inning. And then he scores on a Martin single eventually. And then Snyder homers again over the scoreboard in right center. That gives him four for the series and nine for his career. That puts him behind only Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig on the all-time series list. So Duke Snyder definitely making an impact here. The Yankees get some offense from pinch hitter Bob Serve. He pinch hits for Bob Grimm. He leads off the seventh with that home run, which goes to left field. That gives the Yankees 100 World Series home runs all time. You have Roger Craig in the game for the Dodgers. He walks Howard and then is relieved by Labine for his fourth series appearance. Uh, Yogi Berra leads off the eighth with a home run to right field, but then Carl Frill leads off the eighth with a hit off of Billy Martin's glove. Then he eventually scores on a single by Robinson. The Dodgers win this game by a score of 5-3 to three to go up three games to two in the series. This is the first time in series history that a team has won three straight after dropping the first two. The Dodgers end up turning three double plays and Pee Wee Reese said in all the years I have been with the Dodgers we have never had a better chance to win the series than right now and he's right yeah they still have to win one of two games in the Bronx but you're in the catbird seat to borrow a hawkism here you mentioned the uh, three double plays, two of those coming off of pitches thrown by Clem Levine. Roger Craig, who had started this game for the Dodgers, was doing okay and then ran into a little bit of trouble in the top of the seventh, gave up a leadoff home run to Bob Serve, made it 4-2, to two, then walked Elston Howard. That was the point where Levine came in. He induced double play from Irv Norin, which I think that's at least the second one this series that I can remember looking through this. 
he would induce another one to end the eighth inning off the bat of Billy Martin, who then got three straight ground outs to end the game and give the Dodgers the 3-2 series lead. So like I said, you gotta go back to the Bronx to try and wrap this series up, but these games will be somewhat marred by injuries to some star players. For instance, Mickey Mantle had played games three and four with a bad leg. Jimmy Cannon said that he quote-unquote was in no shape even to go down to the corner for a beer. And Mantle ends up sitting these last games of the series. Snyder, meanwhile, comes out of this next game after injuring his knee when he said he stepped on a sprinkler head while running in the Yankee Stadium outfield, which kind of brings you back to what happened to Mickey Mantle in his first World Series a few years back. What is going on at that Yankee Stadium outfield, and why can't the grounds crew get their work in order? Well, at least this time they're kind of balancing it out a little bit, if nothing else. I guess, but it just doesn't seem fair. And I know both of these guys are Hall of Famers, but they just should not be factors here. Ford Frick attends Game 6. Phil Rizzuto walks to lead off the first inning, steals second on a strikeout of Martin for the 10th stolen base of his series career. And then he scores on a bare single that's just out of Gilliam's reach. Moose Gowrie hits a three-run homer to write the 17th of the series, and that ties the record set in 1953 involving these same two teams. And the Dodgers started a man that you probably would not have heard of otherwise, Carl Spooner. He gets yanked, and coming in for him is Russ Meyer. And the Dodgers turn a World Series record 11th double play here. You know, Peter Reese singling to lead off the fourth for the Dodgers' first hit. Zimmer replaces Snyder in the lineup. Snyder hurts D, by the way, while he's chasing a scour and fly in the third inning. Farrell singles to score Reese, but it's all Whitey Ford in this game. He allows four hits and strikes out eight. The Yankees win this by a score of 5-1. to one. So this is going to a deciding seventh game. Ford would say, I kept watching the Dodgers from the bullpen those three games at Ebbets Field. I figured out just how to handle them. So it's all going to come down to a game that both teams want for their own reasons. I'm sure for the Dodgers, there has to be at least a little bit of a feeling of, oh no, not again, given that I think it was 1952 the series went seven. Their matchup in 53, I think, only went six, if memory serves. But they've had so many close calls, and they are going to turn back to the guy who pitched really well in Game 3, Johnny Padres, in an effort to finally finally break through. Well, let's set the stage for Game 7, shall we? The Dodgers have arguably the most intimidating right-handed lineup in the history of baseball, which means they were fantastic against left-handed pitching. But Casey Stengel decides to go against his own convention. As you may or may not know, and I think we've talked about this before, he was an expert at the platooning strategy. That's how he kind of came about because people didn't think it was a sound strategy and yet it worked at the very start of this Yankees run. He decided to abandon that philosophy. He decides to throw lefties in four of the seven games and the Yankees won the first three with Ford winning twice and Byrne once and Stengel decides to push his luck and throws Byrne back out there for game seven Alston decides to go with Padres for Game 7 because he pitched so well in Game 3. Snyder would say later, We were getting onto our team bus at Ebbets Field, and Padres quote-unquote hopped up the steps, started down the aisle, and told us with all the confidence in the world, 
Just give me one run today. That's all I'll need. Just one. And at the same time, it was kind of a risky proposition to start Padres in a seventh game because he had gone only 9-10 and 10 during the regular season, a 3.95 ERA, and a whip of 1.362, numbers that aren't terrible, but not exactly a pitcher that he would throw in a Game 7 situation, but as we'll see time and time again as we get into future Game 7s, Lucas, that you're not always going to be able to throw your best pitcher in a decisive seventh game. And this is definitely one of those situations. Don Newcomb is your only 20-game winner that year. Erskine is your second-best win pitcher with 11 among starters. I mean, you have Levine winning 13 during the season. But, you know, it's a lot of pressure to put on a young kid to start a Game 7 when you've got an entire borough just begging, begging, begging to win just one World Series, especially against those damn Yankees. But you've got to love the confidence from him to be like, hey, just give me one run. That's all I need. So here's what happens in Game 7. This is Phil Rizzuto's 52nd series game. That is a record. McDougal hits a grounder to third that hits Barra as he slides into the bag, which ends a Yankees threat. In the fourth inning, Roy Campanella doubles with one out and then... He eventually scores on a single by Gil Hodges, so there's your one run right there. And then you have Yogi Berra doubling into center field, and it just kind of falls between Gilliam and Snyder, and then he is stranded there, and you know I'm sure he's frustrated about that. Snyder attempts a sack bunt after Reese's leadoff single in the sixth, but both are safe when Scourin loses the ball while he is tagging Snyder. You have Grimmer leaving Burr with the bases low, and then he gives up a sacrifice fly to Gil Hodges, so the Dodgers are up 2 to nothing right here. And here is where the sixth inning comes into play. Amaros enters the game in left field, and Gilliam moves to second base. And you have Martin walking, and McDougal bunts to put the tying run on. And here is the moments that I'm sure a lot of Dodgers fans were thinking, okay, this is it. This is going to be our moments right here. So you've got one out and two on. Yogi Bear hits a line drive down the left field line, but Amaros, who's a left-handed fielder, he makes a running catch in the left field corner, and McDougal tries to get back to first after he rounded second, but he's thrown out an unconventional 7-6-3 double play. It is the Dodgers' 12th double play of the series, and a series record 19th overall. So, Lucas, if you're in Brooklyn right now, and you're seeing this or you're hearing this, what is going through your mind? Do you think that they're thinking, wow, we might actually do it this time? I mean, that has to be the moment. And it's during a lot of these magical runs like this, a lot of times teams can point to one singular moment where it's like, that's the moment that we knew. And I feel like for Dodgers fans, this has got to be it. Because really up until this point, like, yeah, you had won game five and you were up three to two, but knowing you're coming back to Yankee Stadium, you only have to win one of the two. But after the rough one in game six, knowing you've got one last chance for all the marbles after you've had so many struggles to finally get over the hump, and it seems like the Yankees are just waiting and they have their moment here getting guys on. And then you have that seven six three double play all of the sudden, a ton of that pressure and weight has to lift off of you. The Yankees would threaten one more time in the bottom of the eighth inning when they get singles from Rizzuto and McDougald, but Padres is able to pitch out of that jam. And then we get into the 
ninth inning, and it's all academic for Padres from here. You have scouring, grounding out. You have serve, flying out to left. And then you have the play that will live in glory for all Brooklyn Dodgers fans forever. Elson Howard grounds to Pee Wee Reese, and he throws to first. It's out. And as the late, great Vin Scully told viewers on NBC at that moment, ladies and gentlemen, the Brooklyn Dodgers are the champions of the world. And I got to be honest, Lucas, when I saw them celebrating after that final out, I was celebrating with them, even though this happened way before I was born. I was just so happy to see them so joyous. Probably the most joyous World Series celebration I have seen to this point, given everything they have been through. But, you know, Lucas, you and I, we've been on this journey with these Dodgers coming up short against the Yankees year after year after year, and even years before when they lost a couple of World Series, well before the Yankees became a dynasty. But I can definitely empathize with all the trouble that they have been through to get to this moment, and now they have it. And they deserve all the celebrating that they are going to be doing within their clubhouse and beyond that. Well, I mean, for one thing, we'll let uh, Carl Erskine kind of speak for a moment earlier in the game. We mentioned the uh, bouncing ball that hit Phil Rizzuto back in the third. Erskine mentioned that that play was an omen and said that uh, such miscues had usually been the things that happened to us. And to see the shoe on the other foot had to have kind of been a moment that combined with, we mentioned the moment a little bit later in the game. But, you know, I think back to... You know, what you experienced in 2005 and what I experienced in 2016. Sports fandom, a lot of the time, like, more often than not, you're going to end up disappointed at the end of a year. I mean, only one team can win. And as we've seen through the course of this podcast, the Yankees have been on the right side of history so many times. But then there's that, you know, like 99 times out of 100, it ends in disappointment. But then there's that 100th time. And by God, does that make everything else worth it? And I will say this. You know, you mentioned 2005, 2016. We'll even throw in 2004. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 2019 was another one that we mentioned as we were kind of talking in leading up to this. So my point here is this. You know, all of those years that we just mentioned, those were years that came about after years of disappointment for teams that not only did not win the World Series, but rarely ever got to the World Series or cities that had to wait a long time to get back to the World Series. In the Dodgers case, however, you know, they played at a time when the pennant winner automatically went to the World Series, so you have more opportunities. And to get so close so many times and come up empty every time, that's got to be more frustrating than a Billy Goat curse or Curse of the Bambino or curse of players throwing the World Series or teams moving. I mean, that's gotta be just like one punch to the gut after another. So you can definitely see how Dodgers fans would feel. So given all of that, I feel like that of all the curses, droughts, whatever, that have been broken in baseball over the years, this had to be the most satisfying for any fan base ever. It's definitely got to be. I mean, you can make the argument for either an 04 or an 05 or a 16 just because of the length of time that it had been. But in terms of how close 
these Dodger teams got over the years only to fall short to finally have everything break right for them here in 1955. You're absolutely right, and 100% Brooklyn Dodger fans in 1955, I feel for you, I'm happy for you, several years later. So here is how big that celebration in Brooklyn was. As Scully would later say, it was like VE Day and VJ Day combined into one. Asked how he stayed so calm during that final out. He said, well, the truth is I was so emotionally overwhelmed by it all that if I had to say another word, I think I would have cried. And people did cry, tears of joy all over Brooklyn. What happened, according to one writer, was the biggest thing that ever happened in Brooklyn, although it happened in the Bronx. You had restaurants and butcher shops and candy stores in Brooklyn giving away tons of free stuff. You had confetti coming down from office buildings from the top floors there. You had people marching into the streets, making noise however they could, with garbage can covers banging them. That's called foreshadowing. They blew bicycle cars and they yelled. As one writer put it, Brooklyn last night was a patchwork of neon lights reflected in streets awash from open fire hydrants. And when Johnny Padres, who won the first World Series MVP, the real first World Series MVP, deservedly so, when he arrived at the victory party at the Hotel Boss Search, he was mobbed by over 3,000 fans. But Dodger pitcher Ed Roebuck said this, what I remember most about the series was the close relationship between Padres and his father. In the clubhouse, after Johnny pitched the shutout to win the final game, they were hugging and crying. Which, I would say, is perfectly representative of what so many Brooklyn Dodger fans were feeling at that particular moment. You know, we talk a lot about going back to these particular moments with a time machine, and maybe someday that will happen. But I would love to be in Brooklyn on October 4th, 1955. Absolutely throw that one on the list of moments to go back and see. You know, neither one of us are Dodger fans, but because we feel for them by proxy and just to be able to see that celebration, and we have talked in past episodes about just how passionate this fan base is. If there was any fan base to this point that deserved a World Series championship, it was this one. And, you know, I, you kind of touched on it, Lucas. We root for teams that had long championship droughts before they finally won one. And granted, we were not alive for the vast majority of time in which those droughts took place. But at the same time, because we kind of relate to championship droughts, I think we kind of feel a connection to these Brooklyn Dodger fans. Now, granted, they have had way more opportunities to win the World Series than we've seen our teams see in our lifetime really ever when you think about it in some respects. We have to throw our arms around their shoulders because, you know, we have experienced this heartbreak over and over and over again. And, you know, like you said, when that one time out of 100 happens, everybody is just so joyful, so happy, and it's like, to borrow a cliche phrase, they can finally die in peace. Absolutely. I I think that's a perfect way to put a bow on this episode. I really do. Well, let's not put a bow on this just yet. Let's go over some numbers really quickly. Uh, yeah, Giant Padres pitching two complete victories. Uh, Casey Stengel said afterwards, I played the game wrong. I figured Padres couldn't last, and I had our hitters taking the pitches, but he did last, and I was wrong. They should have been up there swinging from the beginning. As far as the Yankees go, you had Yogi Berra, 
Probably the best hitter for the Yankees. 10 hits, a 417 batting average. And then you had Duke Snyder's power outburst as well. But again, Padres is the reason the Yankees win those two critical games. I mean, yeah, you could definitely make a case for Duke Snyder in particular with his power to win that World Series MVP. But I don't think that war was going to go to anybody but the Padres, especially after shutting out the Yankees in their home ballpark in Game 7. Do you disagree with that? I 100% agree with you. Like, you know, Snyder's numbers, uh, 320, 370, 840 slash lines. You mentioned the four home runs, seven RBIs. Like, that's a phenomenal thing. But he got some help. Carl Ferrillo hit 296 over the course of the series. Uh, Jim Gilliam hit 292, Gil Hodges 292 as well. Kind of a rough series for Jackie Robinson. He only hits 182 and actually does not play in the decisive Game 7. But the Dodgers didn't end up needing him because they had World Series MVP Johnny Padres. Carl Erskine and Roger Craig are still alive, thankfully. Sandy Koufax is too, but obviously a very minor player on this particular season. But Carl Roger, if you just so happen to be listening to this, thank you for providing us with, I think, the most enjoyable episode that we have done to this point. You know, like I said at the beginning of this, we've done some episodes we look forward to for all the wrong reasons, but this is an episode that we're looking forward to for all the right reasons. And as I mentioned when we were texting Lucas, I might, I'm not saying I will, but I might just have to go out and buy a Brooklyn Dodgers cap because... I just feel so good after this episode. I don't say that after every episode that we do, but this is the prototype, I'd say, as far as feel-good episodes, at least up to this point for us. Oh, 100%. And also, have any of the other World Series champions and episodes we've talked about get a mention in Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire? Because the 1955 Dodgers did. Brooklyn's got a winning team. That's exactly what Mr. Joel wrote. And the very last thing, John Drebinger, the New York Times, wrote this. Brooklyn, at long last, has won the World Series. And now let someone suggest moving the Dodgers elsewhere. Uh-oh. Oh, no. No, 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 no! Well, we wanted to say that just yet, but it's an eerie sign of things to come. For one, we'll see these Dodgers back in 1956, and we'll see the Yankees back in 1956 as well. A perfect grudge match. And will the Yankees reassert their dominance or the Dodgers say there's a new share from the Big Apple? You're going to have to tune in next week to find out. So for Lucas Smitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 1955 episode of Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. We will see you next time.